Welcome to the Preacher Girl Podcast. My name is Diane Wright, and over the years I've had a lot of opportunities to be a guest speaker, mostly in Unitarian Universalist churches around the southwestern part of Ohio. Lots of people ask for tapes of me speaking, so I thought a podcast might be a fun way to share. Today's podcast is a talk I shared originally in July of 2006 at the First Unitarian Universalist Church in Cincinnati. The title of today's talk is From Mecca to Medina, Thoughts on the Meaning of Hijra. Thanks again for tuning in. I have two readings to share with you this morning. The first is from the Reverend Patricia Tomino of the First Unitarian Universalist Society of Middleborough, Massachusetts. She says, Two Middleborough police officers were recently parked on the side of Route 25 toward the Cape, waiting to catch people speeding. They saw a car puttering along at 25 miles per hour and decided to pull it over because, as you know, going too slow can be just as dangerous as speeding. So they turned on their lights and pulled the driver over. One of the officers exited the vehicle to talk to the driver, an older male who had with him four other passengers, all wide-eyed and white as ghosts. The driver, concerned about being stopped, said, Officer, I don't understand why you stopped me. I was doing exactly the speed limit. What seems to be the problem? Sir, the officer said, you weren't speeding, but you should know that driving slower than the speed limit can also be a danger to other drivers. Slower than the speed limit? No, sir, I was doing the speed limit exactly, 25 miles an hour. And he said this a bit proudly. The police officer hid his desire to chuckle and kindly explained that 25 was the route number, not the speed limit. The man realized his mistake and sheepishly thanked the officer for pointing out his error. But the officer was still concerned. Before I let you go, sir, I have to ask, is everyone in this car okay? These passengers seem awfully shaken and they haven't muttered a single peep this whole time. Oh, they'll be all right in a minute, officer. We just got off Route 195. The second reading this morning comes from Paul Simon's Graceland. The Mississippi Delta was shining like a national guitar. I'm following the river down the highway through the cradle of the Civil War. I'm going to Graceland. In Memphis, Tennessee... I'm going to Graceland, poor boys and pilgrims with families, and we are going to Graceland. My traveling companion is nine years old. He is the child of my first marriage, but I've reason to believe we both will be received in Graceland. Losing love is like a window in your heart. Everybody sees you're blown apart. Everybody sees the wind blow. There's a girl in New York City who calls herself the human trampoline. And sometimes when I'm falling, flying, or tumbling in turmoil, I say, whoa, so this is what she means. She means we're bouncing into Graceland. I'm going to Graceland for reasons I cannot explain. There's some part of me wants to see Graceland, and I may be obliged to defend every love, every ending, or maybe there's no obligations now. Maybe I have a reason to believe we all will be received in Graceland. 
these days, like so many of us, I find myself skipping across the surface of life. But I hope you'll indulge me this morning as we let ourselves sink into the depths for a little while. Take a breath. Let's step back and take a look at this day. It's July 16th. 1,384 years ago today, Muhammad left the city of Mecca and began his journey to Medina. It was a journey to save his life. Muslims look to July 16th in the year 622 as the beginning of the Muslim calendar. They refer to the journey Muhammad took as the Hijra. The word has become Hijra in English and variously means pilgrimage, migration, a necessary movement from one life to another. I don't want anyone to think I'm trying to seem like an expert on Islam. I don't know very much about the religion. I was lucky enough to travel to Morocco many years ago, where I quickly learned as an unveiled, blue-eyed, light-haired woman, I was an outsider. It was a very stressful trip. And on the train back to Tangier from the interior of the country, my traveling partner and I had run out of Moroccan money. We were exhausted. In the cities of Morocco, we had been subjected to all kinds of the most unfortunate attention. On the train, two men sat across from us. They were Berbers from the villages along the Atlas Mountains. Only one of them spoke a little French, so between us we had one of those conversations made up of many tiny words and verbs in incorrect tenses. He said he could see how tired we were, and he bought us lunch. When we hesitated to accept the gift, he smiled with understanding and told us not to worry, that we should just pass along the favor. And then, in his quiet, peaceful way, he became very serious and said we had not seen Morocco. He said, if you really want to see Morocco, you must travel into the mountains where the people were still faithful to Allah and therefore kind to the pilgrims who passed through. I had never thought of myself as a pilgrim before. It embarrassed me, his assumption that I had been that thoughtful about my travels. The truth was I was a very young, naive, lucky American girl who wanted to be able to say I had been on a train to Marrakesh I felt ashamed I had made such a journey without considering it more deeply. Many things have changed since that trip. I do not necessarily think I would be welcome in those mountain villages today, and I wonder about the man on the train. I approached a Muslim coworker of mine to ask about Hijra. She smiled when I asked her if she could tell me a little bit about the significance of the Hijra for Muslims. She said there was a lot to say. She said the Hijra is a symbol for the journey from a life of sin to a better life, a life more focused on God. She said there had been several fatwas, which are like the religious mandates given out by Muslim imams, saying that Muslims in North America should leave and move to a country that was not so full of materialism, waste, and sin. Muhammad left Mecca when he learned that the religious leaders there were plotting his murder. 
Muhammad had been pissing them off for quite some time, criticizing their worship of multiple gods and their idolatry. He was gaining followers and hurting the business of the most powerful men in Mecca, whose profits depended on sales to pilgrims. So he left for Medina, narrowly escaping with his life. And he was welcomed there, and after eight years, he had gathered an army of followers, literally, who went with him back to Mecca, where he took over and imposed his own teachings, which he said came through Allah to him, of only one God, the importance of daily prayer, the importance of pilgrimage to Mecca. Reading about his time in Medina, it sounds like it wasn't entirely rosy. Muhammad was pissing people off again. This time he attacked the Jews and Christians, Jews for not acknowledging that Jesus and Muhammad were prophets, and Christians for believing in the Trinity, which he saw as something other than a belief in one God. So when you get the whole story, it becomes clear that the Hijra wasn't just about going from one place to a better place. It was about leaving a place and going elsewhere to grow and strengthen and to prepare to return. And as Muhammad returned to Mecca, so have millions and millions of devout Muslims gone to Mecca on pilgrimage for over a thousand years. We, however, find ourselves on a continent with a different kind of history. My son Tucker is four, and he's at that stage when one question leads to another and another and another, and I found that for a while I could slow him down by teaching him big words as part of the answer. These are the words my dad always calls 50-cent words. The other day, after asking me why the universe was so large and why the earth is spinning, Tucker asked me what Eskimos are, and so I said, Eskimos are an indigenous people. Can you say indigenous? And he did, frighteningly easily. And then he asked what indigenous means. So I told him indigenous people are people who've lived in the same place for a very, very long time. But I know now that Tucker is sensing it. He's picking up the pheromones that are released from me as I am reconsidering my simple definitions. He can sense that I'm seeing the migration across the land bridge from Siberia. Tucker asked, Mama, are we indigenous? Well, no, I answered slowly, aware that right in that second not being indigenous was surprisingly disappointing. In the end, he was satisfied going back to the original question. He wanted to know if Eskimos lived near polar bears and penguins, and I felt really good explaining the difference between the North Pole and the South Pole, and that polar bears, not penguins, live up north, near the same places where tribes of Eskimos live. I was back on solid turf, and he gave up when I said, and then there's the Aurora Borealis. Can you say Aurora Borealis? But I was hooked on the scenes that were still in my head, the migration of people across continents, the migration of my own ancestors. Like a National Geographic special, the cartoon arrows across computer-animated globes, showing the movement of humans across miles and millennia. And I felt that same twinge of shame that I felt in Morocco as I considered the luxuries and complacency of my own life when you hold it up 
and compare it to the lives of the people who came before us, who often really did need to leave or die. They endured the hijra that eventually resulted in each one of us being here, free to rest, free to listen to these words, free, for the most part, to travel. I've been traveling more for work in the last couple of years, going to different parts of the country to review mental health agencies for accreditation. This is a very cool thing, by the way, for a social worker. I think most of us never expected to be by ourselves, walking purposefully through an airport in another city, pulling that black-wheeled suitcase behind us. It's one of our cultural images of material success. But I've tried to be a more conscious and conscientious traveler. I've tried to live up to the generous description from that man on the train. And I realize this could all be in vain. We both had a limited common language. And what I heard him say as pilgrim might actually have been the French word for prostitute, but I'm just not going to go there. Instead, I do three things when I travel. I consciously prepare for the journey learning about the landscape, the culture, and the people I will be seeing. I keep my eyes open. I try to pay attention to the different kinds of light, the different ways the clouds gather and disperse, the different patterns of crowds at night in a city that's not my home. And I listen to the people and places around me and to myself. This year I was lucky enough to travel on business to Newark, New Jersey, which put me in launching distance for a day trip to see a dear friend in New York City. A couple of weeks ahead of the trip, he asked me what kinds of things I would like to do since I hadn't been to the city in a number of years. The Metropolitan Museum? The Empire State Building? Ground Zero? I surprised him when I told him the one place I wanted to go was the United Nations Complex. When you begin your tour at the United Nations, and let me just tell you, we were on the English language tour with 10 other people, and my friend and I were the only Americans in the group. The guide tells you proudly that when you step into the United Nations complex, you leave the United States and enter international territory. I know there are people who do not share my fondness for the United Nations, but so far, I still have the right in this country to piss people off and not have to worry about death threats for what I say. The United Nations complex is full of reminders of how rare and precious that right is. Dag Hammarskjöld, one of my heroes, who was the UN Secretary General from 1953 until his death in 1961, said, The longest journey is the journey inwards, of him who was chosen his destiny. He reminds us that we disrespect all of those who struggled before us and those who struggle now in the world simply to survive when we skip along the surface of our own lives, too rushed to consider the journey, too well-fed and content to ponder something like destiny. In a way, our excesses in materialism are our own death threats, this is our own Mecca. Where will we find our Medina? How will we make our own Hijra? It's summertime. For many of us, this is a time of travel. We tend to call it vacation. 
What would it mean to call it pilgrimage? How would it change us if we thought of the trip differently and named it something else? Like routes 195 and 25, the name of the road alone probably shouldn't be the only guide you have about how or how fast to travel it. But what if, instead of saying, we're heading down for a vacation at the beach, we said, we're preparing ourselves for the annual pilgrimage to a place that's sacred to our family. Perhaps it would be easier for us to achieve the kind of renewal we crave if we thought about it that way. My prayer today is that we may all travel well, that we may all find a way to leave behind those things that might harm us, that we point ourselves toward a new Medina, a place of renewal, a graceland, where we find all the best and worst aspects of ourselves, and where still we all will be received. So may it be. Thank you for listening. You can find more of my podcasts at preachergirl.podbean.com. Many thanks to singer-songwriter Stephen Grant Smith for his musical contributions. You can find more of his music at cdbaby.com or amazon.com. This is Diane Wright. Thanks again for listening to the Preacher Girl podcast. And as always, feed your spirit, live in love. Until next time.